You're listening to a podcast produced by the Jackson School of International Studies, the Center for West European Studies, and the European Union Center at the University of Washington. This and other podcasts can be found on iTunes and SoundCloud. For more information, visit us at jsis.washington.edu slash eu-west-europe. Thank you so much um, for being here. I'll go ahead and I'll introduce you and then we'll, we'll go ahead and, and get started. Scott uh, Montgomery, you're an author, a geoscientist, um, faculty member in the Jackson School of International Studies at the University of Washington. Mm-hmm. And you write and lecture on a wide variety of, of topics related to energy. So um, geopolitics, technology, resources, um, climate change, um, and many other things. And you're also a frequent contributor to online journals um, such as The Conversation, Forbes, and Fortune. Um, and then you've also had some op-eds um, frequently in a number of other different publications like Newsweek, um, The Huffington Post, Market Watch. So we're really um, fortunate to have you here today and looking forward to the conversation. So I'll go ahead and turn it over to you. Okay, great. So thanks everyone for, uh, for coming. Um, this is a, uh, a lecture that uh, I'm going to try and make um, fairly comprehensible um, and, and uh, straightforward. Uh, the energy situation in Europe and the, uh, which is directly related to their, uh, their new view of emissions and climate policy um, is very complicated and there are uh, a lot of trade-offs and uh, we will look at just a couple of them. What I'd like to do uh, today is give you an overview of the new policy uh, dimension and direction that the EU is taking. It's called the New Green Deal and if that doesn't sound entirely original, well, there's a reason for that. Um, <laughs> but uh, it is entirely serious uh, in Europe. They are placing uh, climate concerns at the center of every policy uh, issue at this point. Um, and so they are, they are uh, the commission and the EU as a whole is very dead set on making this um, a very important uh, factor in the history of the union, of the, the European union. And they are very, uh, uh, focused on leading the world this way. Now, whether the world will follow is another question, um, but having a model of success would, uh, would definitely be an advancement of some sort. So let's go ahead. Um, so I'm shortening the title to the European Green Deal here. And if you look online for that title, you will find all the information uh, and more that we you would want. Now, they bring it up front that they are, uh, their ambition is to uh, create the world's first climate neutral continent. Now, we in the West know, <laughs> think of Europe as a continent, but if you're from East Asia, you know that they're not. <laughs> but uh, historically, it still makes sense to say that. Now, they are using a number of key drivers. This is very much a, uh, an idea driven um, kind of uh, um, effort, enterprise, uh, they are l- looking to use policy as a, uh, um, a, a center of power to bring countries together. Policies that uh, hopefully will be consensual to, and actually need to be, um, but policies that will recognize the differences between states. Um, this is also uh, um, aimed at integrating the union uh, in terms of its energy connections, interconnections, um, so that uh, if one state is lacking in some way, another can make up for it. If there are any crises, if there are any political problems, uh, that can, those can be compensated for by the others. But another major um, 
factor in this is innovation. Um, and uh, it's quite interesting. The, the European is sending a series of, uh, um, uh, what would I say, representatives and, uh, and meeting and, uh, and uh, groups to meet with other countries around the world and universities particularly. They are looking to bring uh, people in the STEM and in the policy um, worlds to Europe to help work on this. Uh, they would like to collect as much, uh, as many good minds as they can and bring them back home um, to make this a, a reality. It's, a, it's an interesting, and as I say, a very serious enterprise. Um, now, this will give you, this is part of a document that uh, was published a couple of years ago before the pandemic. Uh, trying to sketch out the uh, the dimensions of uh, the the Green Deal, um, and I wanted to go through some of these just just quickly. Um, you notice they put climate pact and the climate law uh, at the at the apex of this. Um, that's not an an accident by any means. They do see regulation, um, and uh, and the legal framework as being very important in terms of driving this forward. Uh, and that should be a clue to all of us that they are thinking about um, urging people, encouraging people on the positive side, but also potentially the punitive side if, uh, if there are some laggards, let's put it that way. Um, they are looking at large investment in smarter, more sustainable transport. Um, very big thing because that's the source of most emissions. Uh, in the uh, in the energy sector, and the energy sector overall is responsible for 75% of Europe's emissions. So it's a uh, it's a big factor. Um, striving for greener industry, uh, eliminating pollution, ensuring a just transition for all. That's a very important aspect to this, and it is not. Uh, interpreted in the same way that we are interpreting it today in the United States. And we will get to that a little bit later on um, because it is very interesting. Uh, again, investment and finance into green projects. Uh, that doesn't only mean uh, energy, but it is related. Buildings are an important factor. Uh, infrastructure as a whole, very important factor there. Um, making homes more energy efficient. Um, then leading the green change globally. And then a major um, aspect of this is called uh, from farm to fork. So uh, this has to do obviously with uh, food production, uh, but also imports um, and, uh, and uh, how to handle that. Then protecting nature and promoting clean energy. Now, if we go around in, in the clockwise <laughs> way, we end up with promoting clean energy. But I think just in the very brief summary um, that I've given you here, you can see that that is really at the center of a great deal of this uh, European Green Deal. That's really the center of it, um, is the, uh, the clean energy. And that's where we're gonna spend our time um, today. Okay, so a clean energy transition, meaning a decarbonization of the EU's energy system. So what are some of the main uh, ideas that are involved here? One of them is investment and innovation, as, as I've mentioned, but in particular areas uh, in hydrogen, in renewable energy, and, and this mainly means wind and solar, but not exclusively. They're also talking about oceanic and tidal um, and possibly ocean thermal uh, going into the, uh, into the future. They are very focused on, e on electric vehicles uh, and the electrification of transport as a whole. Uh, and that means batteries, of course. They are also very interested in using hydrogen as a potential fuel in aviation and for very heavy vehicles, uh, including potentially marine vehicles, uh, vehicles that are somewhat out of reach of uh, electrification within the next uh, couple of decades. Um, so 
Um, hydrogen in that form, uh, that's a little bit beyond what we're talking about right now. It would not be as a gas, it would probably be in the form of a, uh, of what is called a metal hydride, which releases hydrogen uh, and, and actually produces electricity. So those would, those would be electric vehicles too, but in a very different mode uh, than batteries. Okay, now big priorities here. It, the biggest of all is the power sector, electric, electricity, because that, as everyone in the energy uh, industry and uh, in the energy ex expertise industry, agrees that the increase in electricity is the, the wave of the present into the future. And this will affect all sectors of the economy from transport and residential um, to industry um, and to commerce. Um, and so how you produce electricity becomes extremely central uh, to the climate question and to the decarbonization. Um, questions. And then there's a focus on integrated, interconnected, and digitized market. Now, I left the S in digitized because we're talking about Europe, sign of respect. Um, <laughs> not necessarily very profound, but nonetheless. And what you can read into this, and it's quite interesting uh, because it isn't discussed as much as it might be, but this is Europe trying to reintegrate the union, to keep the union together and to use climate policy and energy policy and related integrations to do that. Because at the moment uh, and in the wake of Brexit and with a number of problems uh, related to liberal democracy, uh, in a number of European countries, uh, there's been some serious doubts about the future of the union. And this has uh, usually been played out in the energy um, area where countries have developed their own policies. This is an attempt, the, the new Green Deal, this is an attempt to reverse that momentum. Uh, so it has a very deep political, geopolitical dimension to it. Um, and I would emphasize that. Uh, now, they have targets. And one of the biggest is this one, 55% reduction in greenhouse gases from 1990 levels. And they have a short um, uh, a nickname for that, and it's called FIT. 455. So if you, uh, if you take this up in your classes uh, and uh, you see this phrase, that's what it means. 55, getting fit, a uh, little bit of a Darwinian term there, which is kind of interesting, uh, for uh, reducing emissions in the entire union uh, by 55%. Now, uh, the uh, hope is that every country will reach that. But the understanding is that some countries will and some countries will go further than that and some countries may not make it. Uh, and that has a lot to do with their reliance on coal and we will take that up uh, in just a few moments. Um, now it's important to see where these plans fit in the larger context of global energy and its change over time. Um, this graph helps show that. I'm gonna be showing you a few other graphs. You really can't talk about energy without talking about numbers. And uh, one of the most efficient ways of uh, dealing with numbers, uh, particularly in energy has to do with uh, the use of graphs uh, and, and looking at changes over time. Um, and so this is a, a graph that shows where the world uh, was in, up to 2020, going back to 1995. Uh, this is from a uh, document that BP uh, puts out every year and has been putting out for 65 years. It is used by energy experts uh, and decision makers uh, worldwide at this point. Um, but uh, rather than its history, um, uh, let's look at 
uh, it's considered to be, I should say, uh, a uh, as 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 accurate a portrayal um, in terms of the large scale patterns it shows as uh, as exists anywhere, um, and is sort of used as a data gospel for um, other analyses. What you see is, is possibly what you uh, might expect, which is that fossil fuels continue to dominate um, and that renewables remain, although they are growing very rapidly, they remain a very small portion overall. Again, that portion is growing and it is growing more rapidly than anything else uh, except natural gas. To, uh, but it is um, still has an awful long ways to go if we are putting all of our marbles into renewables. If we are willing to accept uh, hydropower, and this includes large scale dams creating reservoirs, as well as small scale dams, um, as well as dams that do not create reservoirs um, called run of the river dams, if we're able to uh, accept that as a renewable or as a non-carbon source, then suddenly it gets bigger. Uh, the amount of non-carbon energy uh, doubles. And if we are able to accept nuclear into that, it goes up by another third. Um, and when you put all three of those areas together, what you have is a, is a, a very significant, uh, not equal, yet, but a very significant non-carbon uh, supply of energy worldwide. Uh, and this is um, part of the argument uh, that the uh, uh, Europe is dealing with, what should it actually consider to be clean? Um, but this is a, an argument that is being had around the world. Um, and uh, it will need to be solved one way or the other um, but we'll look at it uh, because it comes to play uh, directly in some of the trade-offs uh, that have been discussed and that are being pursued in the, uh, in the Green Deal now. So this is the larger, uh, the global um, context. Now, in terms of the EU itself um, and in terms of their priority in the power sector, um, this is a graph that shows uh, the, the main sources of electricity. Uh, and what we have here, we'll start at the bottom and you see uh, that coal has been de declining um, since 1985. Uh, it did have a, a bit of a kick up here and there. You'll notice that it had a bump up it, um, after uh, 2000 and 11, that is not due to the global financial collapse, that is due to a number of the countries taking their nuclear reactors offline after the Fukushima accident and having uh, little other options than to increase uh, their coal use because that's what they, that was the resource they had. Um, now you'll notice that gas has increased over time and oil has, uh, has uh, gone, um, uh, has been reduced enormously. Um, and that will probably disappear within the next uh, decade or two. Uh, what is uh, very apparent here though, is that the non-carbon sources of electricity are more dominant than fossil fuels, even at this point. So this is up to 2019. This is a different source. This is no longer BP. This is our world and data, um, which is a new source. Now I wanna uh, look at this in two ways. The first way focuses on the renewables accepting hydropower. And if we do that, Europe gets uh, close to 40%, 37.5% uh, of its electricity from renewables. And that includes solar and wind hydropower, as I mentioned, but also um, biomass, bioenergy. The Europeans have developed that to a, a, a quite a significant degree. Uh, and this includes portions of Scandinavia, Germany, um, less so in England and France, uh, but uh, several other countries, Austria, 
uh, that have large forest resources um, and agricultural wastes. You'll notice that wind is very large and has grown very rapidly, particularly since 2005. Um, and you'll notice that the nuclear remains uh, a significant um, contributor. And, and in fact, it is still the largest contributor of non, um, non-carbon power in Europe. So th if we add that, uh, the EU um, comes in at over half, well over half, over 60% of non-carbon electricity. Now that's really significant. Um, and it is, it is a long ways ahead of where the United States is at this point. Uh, or uh, other portions of the advanced and the emerging world. So Europe is pretty far along um, as a whole right now. The big question uh, that Europe is struggling with uh, has to do with nuclear power, whether they should include that or not. And some countries uh, see that as a godsend and something to expand, not many, um, and a greater number of countries uh, are undecided about it, and a few are uh, very strongly against. So this is a major issue um, going forward. It's a major issue for uh, the world, I would say. Um, this is an area that I've devoted a fair bit of research and writing to, um, uh, because it is a major question going forward. Um, this is a nuclear is a massive source of non-carbon electricity. Um, and so uh, uh, your view of it um, as, as a uh, decision maker has a lot to do where your country will be placed um, in terms of moving forward on non-carbon sources. So in terms of Europe, what is this used for? It's used for transport, okay? Households, industry, these are all the major um, consumption areas. Now, in terms of which ones use electricity the most and whose electricity demand is increasing or will increase very rapidly starting this decade, these are the three. Transport, for sure, because of electric vehicles. Households, because of the increasing use there and the increasing use of digitization um, in household appliances uh, and the services sector. And if we only uh, focus on hospitals and restaurants and movie theaters um, and bars and cafes, uh, that's enough uh, to think about in terms of the service uh, sector that way. So all of these are going to be, uh, are in the process of increasing significantly um, their use and their demand of uh, electricity. Uh, industry is going to be coming up um, significantly behind that, but it will take uh, more time. And the focus in industry may not be electrification, pure and simple. It may actually involve other fuels such as hydrogen uh, for the process heating that is needed. Um, so uh, we are in process, uh, you could say. Now, the, uh, the increase in, in electricity demand does not necessarily mean there will be a demand for more energy if uh, the efficiency of, uh, of generating the electricity and using the electricity both, if, the, if that efficiency um, is, um, increase significantly, and that is another focus of the Green Deal. Um, okay, now I'm going to show you two different, they are neighbors, but they are opposites when it comes to the nuclear issue. This is France, and in terms of France's use for generating uh, power, you can see that nuclear is overwhelmingly the largest, uh, but that uh, wind particularly has grown. Um, oil has remained the same at a small level. Uh, gas has increased slightly, but coal has gone down. Um, the most uh, carbon intense fuel has gone down. Uh, the dip in 2020 for France in terms of nuclear came from uh, the shutdown uh, of uh, Fessenheim 
which was uh, one of the oldest plants they had. Um, they're currently building an, uh, one to replace Fessenheim. Now, if we look at the total non-carbon electricity generation, France is over 90%. Uh, so um, it is well below even what it was in, uh, in 1990 because of its larger coal use at that point. Um, so does France have to do anything? Well, not really, no, it doesn't. And yet in France, uh, there's a fair bit of discussion about what to do uh, with nuclear, should they continue that? And that has a very interesting history and that would be something um, for students to uh, research a little bit. Why did France make this decision? because no other country in Europe made the decision to make nuclear so large a portion of its energy portfolio. Um, and France had very specific reasons for doing this. Um, so that would be interesting. Um, uh, so there is some discussion about replacing portions of the nuclear fleet that they now have with uh, renewables. Um, particularly solar, but also wind, and France has some capabilities in uh, tidal power as well. Um, so uh, open question, uh, but France is in a very good position. Uh, it has a lot of latitude to make uh, decisions like that. The politics of nuclear um, are a little bit more difficult in France than they have been for a long time. Uh, but again, this would be something uh, interesting for the students to find out. Um, now, if we, uh, um, <laughs> this is just an image to show um, that uh, France doesn't mind nuclear next to a sunny <laughs> uh, outlook on, on things. So their next door neighbor is Germany. And as some of you probably know, Germany um, does not like nuclear, even though uh, they have some of the best engineers and some of the best uh, nuclear power plants in the world um, that are uh, running over 100% of what they originally built uh, capable of doing. Um, in any case, uh, you may also know that Germany has, has wanted to be the leader of uh, uh, something approaching the Green Deal for quite a while. They have planned to do this. Uh, they call it the Energiewende, which means the turn or the shift in energy. Um, and they are focused on renewables. Um, and this, particularly in the electricity area, um, uh, even more than in uh, biofuels for the transport. Uh, you can see that the, uh, the increase in wind and solar and other renewables is mostly biomass, bioenergy, biogas, uh, not so much biofuels, but uh, mostly used for, um, for power generation, um, that that has increased enormously since 2005. And this is all according to a plan, uh, to the German plan to do this. Uh, they did decide after the Fukushima accident in 2011 to phase out nuclear power. They shut down uh, half of their reactors uh, in, within the first year and a half. And their plan is to shut down the rest of them next year by the end of 2022. And that will open up a large gap. Uh, and uh, it is a, uh, an, an interesting issue for them uh, to, to be dealing with right now. They have plans. Those plans are politically uh, very difficult uh, for uh, Germany's position in the EU. And we will discuss that. Um, so if it were to uh, continue with uh, nuclear, it would already be at 53% non-carbon. Uh, but the Germans will not do that. Uh, the Germans have been uh, overall, not all of them. Um, this is a button, by the way, that dates from the 1970s and is still um, uh, very well known in Germany and sold. Um, no, thank you. Uh, and uh, worn in the US uh, and in some other places in Japan uh, and in South Korea. Um, but the Germans have a very different view than the French do. Uh, 
and that they share a border is, uh, makes it all the more interesting. And this emphasizes one of the aspects, one of the challenges, you have very different energy policies in different countries within the EU who is trying to basically, well, let's not say impose, but gain consensus uh, in the power sector, uh, actually in all sectors, all energy sectors, but particularly in the power sector. Uh, so this is a, a tricky aspect uh, going forward. Um, and again, it would be interesting to have students, uh, one group of students look at France and another group of students look at Germany. How did these very, very opposite views come to, uh, come to power? Uh, and what might the implications be going forward? Okay, now, oh, one other thing about this, you'll notice that the largest single source of electricity in Germany remains coal. Germany has a very large and uh, powerful coal industry, but you'll also, also notice that it has been declining quite rapidly. Um, now, that being the case, where does Germany fit in with the larger uh, plan to phase out coal altogether as the largest source of emission of carbon emissions and other pollutants like mercury. Um, this is a, 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 a um, comes from a document put out by um, a group Argo, uh, a German group, a think tank on energy matters. And though it lumps a number of things together, it makes some very interesting points. Uh, and the geography of this is, is just fascinating. So the green, as you can see, um, designates countries that have already gotten rid of any coal use or have, uh, have policies in place to phase it out. Um, the blue are uh, countries that are discussing that a phase out. And the orange are those that are not discussing it. Um, they have talked about it maybe a little bit, but uh, coal is too important to them at the moment uh, to be looked at as a, uh, a serious candidate for exile, <laughs> I'll put it that way. Um, and uh, so you see a very strong uh, division between Western Europe and uh, Central and Eastern Europe uh, and Turkey. Uh, and part of the reason for that is that with the exception of Germany and uh, to some degree England, uh, Eastern Europe has coal resources. So it is a matter of energy security for them. It is cheap, it is available, and they have cultures of using it. Uh, they also have unions um, and they have uh, a lot of lobbying pressure to make use of it. Uh, that's particularly true in the case of Poland. And Poland's uh, ideas are to increase its use of natural gas and nuclear power. It has no nuclear power right now, uh, but it is in discussions with Russia and China, uh, South Korea, and uh, a couple of other countries uh, to begin to build uh, reactors there. China is another one. Um, uh, but right now it is very heavily uh, dependent on coal. The same thing with the Czech Republic, um, Romania, um, Bulgaria, and what used to be um, Yugoslavia. Turkey also is, is very dependent on coal because it has that. Now, one thing I wanna, I, I wanna point out to you here is uh, the dates at which uh, all these countries um, I have policies in place now to uh, phase out coal. And you'll notice that with one exception, they are either 2030 or earlier. And the only exception to that is Germany. Now, Germany has an awful lot more coal power. Um, in fact, it has more coal power than the rest of the EU put together. So, uh, that's part of the reason why they will not phase it out till 2038. Um, but there are other reasons too. 
And these guys are part of the reason. Now I show you graphs and I talk about big numbers, but you really can't, uh, you cannot delete or ignore or overlook the human dimension to all this because the energy changes that Europe is talking about uh, in, involve a, an enormous amount of loss of jobs. And we're not just talking about the coal industry, we're talking about the oil industry as well, the North Sea oil industry, uh, and, a, and a growing oil industry in the Eastern Mediterranean, which has become a boom area in the past five to seven years. Uh, mostly natural gas, but a significant amount of oil. Um, that re relates less to Europe than it does to, uh, well, except for Turkey and Cyprus and Greece, but more to uh, Israel and, uh, and Egypt. Um, nonetheless, it's, it's another area that will lose jobs if uh, the EU plan goes forward. Um, this is, the, this is the last lump of coal that came out of the last black coal mine. Now black here means bituminous and subbituminous, and that's the coal that is used to make steel. It's also used to generate, uh, to, to be used in industry and to uh, um, be used in power plants. It's a higher heat content than brown coal, which is lignite, it's a, which is a dirtier coal. Um, it's more that, um, that, that uh, brand of coal that now will be mined and burned in uh, Germany going forward up to 2038. But, you know, this is a, a very interesting portrait of uh, the men in the mines. Um, and the camaraderie and the emotion and everything. So these guys are leaving this job for the last time. Germany has a plan for this. Uh, it has a plan to retrain and reemploy these people. And if they do not choose to do that, if they choose to take early retirement, they get a very generous pension. This is a very different system than exists, let's say in West Virginia where the coal industry uh, is going under. Um, those provisions for the individuals, for the humans <laughs> dimension uh, don't exist in this country. Um, they do exist in some other countries, but Germany has made it a real uh, focus of its attempt to get people on board. Um, it also cannot afford to alienate the coal uh, unions and the mining, they are a very strong block and they vote. Uh, so uh, there's a political dimension to this also. Um, and that makes it all the more interesting. This is a strip lignite mine in Germany. Uh, just to give you a view of, of what a strip mine looks like. Um, presumably this will all be filled in with the, uh, the overburden that was removed. Um, over time, but uh, this is uh, what it does. And this is what it does in the United States, in China, Mongolia, in Russia, wherever you have a strip mine. Um, so there's a good deal of argument in Germany itself, particularly on the part of the Greens, their party, uh, that would like to close these right away and to build up the renewables as fast as possible to replace all the coal uh, and to replace all the nuclear. Um, but the, uh, the other political parties uh, do not agree um, with that. Okay, now this is a, a very interesting problem uh, issue uh, that seems to be solved, but really isn't at this point. Uh, and this is part of the case of Germany. Uh, we talked about the coal, but uh, now we're talking about natural gas uh, and the Nord Stream 2 pipeline, which will run, which does run under the Baltic Sea from Russia into Greifswald in Germany, um, is, has been a source of enormous contention between 
the German government under Angela Merkel and the, the European Union in Brussels. Um, that picture is there meant, uh, you know, is, is humorous uh, because it is Germany uh, taking Russian gas and fighting the EU to be what appears to be on the side of Mr. Putin. Uh, and, uh, and also against the US, by the way, um, who actually put sanctions on uh, Germany for allowing, not only allowing, but encouraging um, and even demanding that this pipeline be built and finished. Uh, I will not give you the entire history of this. Uh, it is very interesting. Uh, there is a Nord Stream 1 that was built in uh, during the Bush administration, 2005 to 2007, and it's been operating since then. And the Nord Stream 2 basically doubles that. Um, the U.S. has been against it, uh, was against Nord Stream 1. The, the European Union put up some noises, but didn't really... Uh, didn't really contend it too heavily, but the Nord Stream 2 is looked at as uh, from two points of view, uh, two negative points of view. One, it's bringing more fossil fuel into Europe. Uh, that would be the, the green type view um, and the climate activist view. And then the other viewpoint is that it is tying Europe's energy future too strongly, and Germany's particularly, too strongly to Russia, to Mr. Putin, who has proved himself, particularly uh, since 2014, uh, when he invaded uh, Ukraine and Europe uh, placed, and the United States placed some major economic sanctions on Russia, which remain in place. Um, uh, the view has been that Germany has placed itself under Mr. Putin's thumb. Um, and there's a joke about the image there that uh, Mr. Putin giving Angela Merkel some flowers. Uh, you can probably imagine what some of the humor is like, you know, what, uh, what might be in the flowers. But uh, Mr. Putin has reason to, to have done that since the, uh, the natural gas company in Russia who's in building the pipeline, Gazprom is a state-owned uh, entity. So the history of this is very interesting and it has been a major source of debate and uh, as I say, contention between Germany uh, and, the, uh, and the EU um, uh, governing body as a whole. Now I'm gonna give you just a few uh, uh, considerations on Germany's side. Uh, this is not going to be complete um, and you could have your students search this out because there's an awful lot of information online. Um, I will give you a warning uh, in a moment. So nuclear is closing down in 2022 and that's about 13% um, of, uh, of electricity. Um, how is that going to be replaced? We've talked about the coal mining unions and how powerful they are. And we've seen that the plans are to remain dependent on coal to some degree, to a significant degree for quite a while. Um, and yet Germany does see itself and as a leader and it has made itself a leader in terms of, of moving towards non-carbon electricity. So it has a need to control its emissions. It has its own targets. Uh, and it wishes very much to match those. Uh, it has struggled to do that because of its coal use um, and its natural gas use, but natural gas is, is uh, only about half the emissions of coal and it has, uh, um, it has uh, none of the, uh, the particulate matter or the, the, uh, the mercury and some of the heavy metals, um, selenium, um, antimony, cobalt, uh, and a number of others that are uh, uh, not very welcome pollutants. Um, so there are these conditions, um, these uh, aspects, um, and Germany sees natural gas as a very important counterweight to coal in terms of uh, allowing it to reduce its emissions particularly since it's going to be losing uh, a non-carbon source very soon. So these dimensions, 
Um, now, at the same time, there is a geopolitical situation from the Russian point of view, and this involves Ukraine. Um, Ukraine and Russia, this is part of the, uh, <coughs> uh, the, the long history here, Ukraine and Russia have had some uh, um, real disagreements about uh, natural gas uh, pricing. Uh, Russia want, or Gazprom wanting to, to uh, raise the prices from what Ukraine was paying in the 1990s, very low prices um, as a former uh, Soviet um, state. Um, and uh, and uh, Ukraine refusing to pay them. And that led to Ukraine actually shutting off get Russian gas because Ukraine is a major corridor, as you can see from this, uh, this image here. Um, here is Ukraine and a large amount of Russian gas going through there. Uh, once that happened, Gazprom came up with uh, what I would call the great pincer play to supply gas around Ukraine, under the Baltic and into Europe through Germany, and also under the Black Sea into Europe uh, through um, former Yugoslavia or through Italy. Um, and Nord Stream 2 is, is the final block in that, uh, in that plan. Um, so Russia sees this as a, uh, as a geopolitical move. The big question, uh, perhaps for your students or for yourself, is who is dependent upon whom in this case? Russia definitely needs the income from Europe. Europe is the largest uh, importer of Russian oil and Russian natural gas. And so you have a very interesting geopolitical situation with Europe wanting to move away from fossil fuels altogether, uh, both for climate reasons and to free itself of dependence on Russia, which uh, dependence has become a, 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 a sore point with Mr. Putin's behavior, behaviors. Um, and then you have, uh, uh, Europe dependent, it still needs its oil for transport. Electrification is not going to be complete by 2040 or 2045 or 2050, but hopefully it'll be a long ways along. Um, it, so Europe will still need oil um, and its choice right now is either Russia, Russia plus OPEC, or potentially uh, the United States as a, a source of exports to Europe. Um, and so there's a, a geopolitical balance as well as a battle going on. Uh, and a large portion of the oil producing world is involved. This is very interesting time, extraordinarily interesting time. Um, and so, uh, you, the EU views its climate policy as a way to become much more self-sufficient. Renewables allow you to be self-sufficient to a much greater degree than when you were importing uh, gas and oil. Okay, so there's a situation and the big question, one of the big questions here is who is dependent on whom? Or are they both, is Europe at, or the EU and Russia in a dance of codependence? So that's Germany's situation. Finland is our second case, our last case, and it is a completely different one. Uh, in Finland's case, they have a very large forestry uh, industry, and they consider that their largest natural resource having to do with energy. So they have large uh, pulp mills, uh, they have a large paper, paper industry, um, they sell raw logs uh, and they have tree farms uh, in many areas of the country. It, uh, Finland is a small country, by the way, population um, not, not, not different really from Norway, only a little a bit over 5 million um, and a very large territory and a, a very large amount of uh, forest land. Um, and so that is an enormous resource that they have. And they see this as a source of, uh, of um, 
uh, of renewable energy. And so uh, this is their way of, uh, of increasing the amount of non-carbon power. Right now, their non-carbon power is 84% of the total electricity they generate. And that has to do, as you can see from the diagram on the right, uh, from a large amount of nuclear, a large amount of hydro, and a significant amount of wood fuels and wind. Those three comprise over 80%. Uh, and uh, it's uh, quite significant. And they look at uh, nuclear and uh, wood fuels as their future. They, their plans are to make nuclear more than half. So pretty much equal with Sweden, but Sweden has a plan right now to, uh, uh, to not build any new nuclear plants and to um, allow the ones that they have now to be relicensed, but then probably to start to go dark uh, starting in the 20, late 2030s and 2040s. So what you're looking at here in the picture in the lower left are what are called wood pellets. This is a, an expanding uh, industry now worth about, oh, I think it's worth about uh, $15 billion. Um, and uh, these are being produced from, uh, from waste products, uh, forestry waste products, and also from uh, um, areas of uh, portions of trees uh, that were not used in the past. Um, and are being exported uh, by Russia, uh, by Germany, by the Czech Republic, um, by Norway, Sweden, and uh, Finland, and the US, and China, and Japan, and South Korea are very big importers of this, um, and India may be as well before long. Um, the point here is that uh, Finland is in a race with Germany to become the first carbon neutral country. Um, and no one counts Iceland there because Iceland has a large, though it has enormous amounts of renewable energy, has a very large fishing fleet uh, that relies on diesel fuels and, and bunker fuels, um, in case you were wondering. So this is very interesting. Um, but the, uh, the Green Deal has not accepted Finland's proposal to use uh, forestry products, um, wood fuels as a major source of electricity only. This has been a battle between Finland and the EU, particularly this year. Uh, a final decision really hasn't been made yet, though uh, in, the, in the early portion of the summer in June, um, uh, this type of um, uh, energy for generating electricity was not going to be accepted. Um, the EU, uh, the Green Deal has also not accepted nuclear power as something that they will finance. Uh, and they were also uh, rejecting uh, Finland's um, source of power um, this way uh, with wood pellets. Um, that changed. Uh, for Finland, they opened it to a certain degree uh, to uh, wood fuels uh, just this month. Um, but the final decision uh, is still somewhat up in the air. Nuclear is still up in the air, but it, it's most likely not going to be accepted as an area where the EU will raise money and invest in it, uh, that that will be left up to individual countries to pursue. Um, and so that's, um, that's quite interesting, but here you have, uh, Finland hoping for, uh, these types of fuels, uh, to take it into, um, a fossil free, uh, <laughs> future. Um, but there's a lot of pushback by the greens against this, against cutting down forests, uh, and uh, counting those as, uh, as carbon uh, neutrality. Okay, Finland uh, is most likely going to be the very first country to open a nuclear waste repository. Uh, they already have it half built and it's used for low level waste. 
starting in 2023, it will open, uh, or it could be even 2022, but I think it will, it will go into 2023 for high level waste. So this will set a new pattern. Um, you're looking at a, uh, the lower portion of Finland here, excuse me. Um, and it has uh, existing reactors in Lovisa and Okilioto, and it is building a new reactor up at, at Hanhikivi and then a new reactor at Okilioto also. And this is where the, uh, um, the repository would be. And they're just, uh, uh, there's a picture there and there's a diagram. It's uh, going to be about 1500 meters uh, below the surface. Um, and it's, it's actually quite well designed, but we'll see. Um, will this make a, a major change for nuclear power going forward? That remains to be seen. Um, but uh, Finland sees it as a necessity for their non-carbon future. Okay. So we come to the, uh, pretty much to the end. And what we're dealing with is quite a number of complexities, even dealing with only two countries. Um, there is a conflict between, and there will be conflicts with other states um, about national energy policies. This is the, the common problem with the EU as a whole. Uh, but in this case, uh, it also involves something as, as uh, basic as what do you consider as green energy or clean energy? And there's an argument about nuclear and there's an argument about biofuels in terms of uh, forestry products. Countries have different needs, different energy needs. They have different resources, which means energy security for them. And they have different politics and all three of those are crucial going forward. So how is the EU Green Deal going to find a way to bring all of these together. Can it do that? Well, these countries have voted in favor of the Green Deal. So the big, the big question for them is how, to what degree and how quickly will they obey what they have voted for? Um, another dimension here is uh, the import dependence. Uh, we didn't talk about that, but I'm bringing it up because it is a major complexity. This has to do with energy technology. Uh, a lot of the solar panels that are uh, used in uh, Europe come from China, which usually has the cheapest. Uh, and some of you may know that China is building uh, a lot of its uh, solar panels um, uh, on the basis of silica, silicon um, that is uh, purified and manufactured in plants in uh, Xinjiang and uh, where the uh, um, uh, where the problems <laughs> with the Uyghurs are and they are and they are the ones who are employed uh, in these plants. And the question of forced labor is a, a very strong one and Europe takes that very seriously. There are, there's also the question of critical raw materials. If they are going to make renewables a source of uh, self-reliance uh, and build their own solar panels, and they are building their own wind turbines, of course, uh, the largest uh, wind um, turbine uh, companies are in uh, Denmark at the, at the current time, um, Vestas. Um, that makes use of raw, of rare earth elements. And right now China continues to have a, a, a sizable dominance in the, in the market. So import dependence doesn't disappear if, if you uh, stop importing oil. Um, the geopolitics I've gone over very briefly. Um, these are very complex, uh, but they are involved. And then you have the realism versus ideology. What about the France-Germany division over nuclear power? How important is this? And how do different countries fall on the line between those two? 
what will be considered in the future in terms of bioenergy if the forest products don't make it? Uh, what about um, biology used in different ways when it comes to uh, algae production, let's say? Um, or other forms, you know, when you have energy crops and uh, uh, those being designed actually now in the laboratory. Uh, so going forward, um, this idea about um, uh, ideas, what is good, what isn't, what is clean, what isn't, what is possible and what isn't, all play a role here and they add complexities to things. Um, this gentleman is not going to be able to help create a green future, although some of the ideas that are put out by activists um, seem to be in his corner more than in the corner of realism. I'll put it that way. And that is the end of my talk.